0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Public Radio turned 50 this year, and we've been celebrating with stories about our state then and now. Well, today, producer Alexandra McMahon and I dive into the CPR archives to dig up radio history and Colorado history.
1: For instance, any guesses as to who this might be?
2: I intend to be a candidate for the presidency of the United States in 1988. And I do so for one single reason, and that is because I love
3: my country.
1: And later, host Avery Lill takes us down memory lane with music and
3: beer. When Boulder Beer opened in 1979, it had the 43rd brewing license after Prohibition, and from then on, the the number of of breweries, which was down around 80 or 88, just began to skyrocket to, to where we are today.
0: During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community
4: each and every day.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been 50 years since this sound first
4: graced the airwaves. Station in Denver is now born. This is John Wendorf, general manager of KCFR, now signing KCFR on the air for the beginning of what we hope to be the most profitable communication experience for both the University of Denver and the Denver community at large.
0: Not sure if he meant to say profitable, but in October of 1970, Colorado Public Radio signed on the air. So we're 50 now. And to mark the anniversary, we've spent the year contrasting our state then and now. You'll get another chance to hear some of those stories in today's year-end special. This whole birthday project was led by producer Exandra McMahon, and uh, happy almost 2021, Exandra.
1: Yeah, you too, Ryan.
0: I understand that your final quest for this project was an audio treasure hunt Uh, Deep into the CPR archives, what did you turn up...
1: Oh, I found all sorts of things. Pretty much any major news story after 1981 was in there. Unfortunately, there's nothing, though, from the 1970s.
0: Kind of like a lost decade of the archives.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Except that sign-on you heard earlier, and that goes on for like 30 minutes, you know, detailing how the first transmitter was atop the Mary Reed Library at the University of Denver and all of that. But I would like to share a little more from that audio, the part where KCFR's mission is outlined.
4: The purpose of a public radio station as ours is to communicate actions, emotions, and philosophies to a listening audience that might not normally be able to hear them on other radio stations. We feel our responsibility to the listener is greater than most, and the burden of our responsibility is greater in presenting areas of social concern because we cannot allow a singular point of view to dominate. We must seek out as many viewpoints as feasible.
1: What do you think, Ryan? Does that still hold up today?
0: Oh, yes, I, I feel that. Awesome responsibility to tell the story of a state. Every day I know you do too, Alexandra.
1: Definitely. And the first actual content that was played on KCFR that October evening in yeah. 1970 was a music program hosted by Ken Hoffman and Ryan, can you guess which artist he played first?
0: Oh, um, let's see. Oh, probably someone John Denver?
1: Mm, that's a good guess but actually it was the Rolling Stones with their relatively (laughs) new track for the time Street Fighting Man That song was actually really steeped in social unrest going on during that time.
0: Oh, so this was obviously a hybrid news and music station at the time. Yes. All right. That's what we know from the archive about CPR in the 70s. But what about the 80s? What big stories did you dig up from the decade of leg warmers and whitewashed jeans?
1: (laughs) Yes, there was much more to go through with the 80s. Lots of stories about gary hart while he was a senator and during his two bids for president Mm. and i want to share two gary hart clips the first is from a 1982 interview with cpr about the clean air act and you can actually hear early concerns of climate change represented in the interviewer's questions
2: this is gary hart reports to colorado in Washington, Senator Hart answers questions in a telephone interview with Colorado Public Radio reporter Neil Best and Greeley. This is the season uh, that we begin to see temperature inversions in Colorado along the Front Range and in some of the more heavily populated uh, valleys in the mountains, resulting in very much uh, a lot of visible smog. What is happening with the Clean Air Act, we hear that the environmental restrictions are being changed in Washington, and how is that going to impact Colorado? First of all, no final decisions have been made on changes in the act. Uh, The House uh, committee that has jurisdiction over this question has begun uh, deliberations and discussion of changes in the law, and those um, have centered on changes in the the so-called mobile sources or automobiles and other vehicles. Uh, There, the House gives some indication of going much further uh, in changing the law and weakening the law than than I would support or I think the people of Colorado would support.
0: The brown cloud that became so infamous along the front range, you know?
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay, what's the other uh, Senator Hart clip?
1: Well, this one is from April 1987, and Gary Hart is dramatically standing in front of Red
2: Rocks. Instead of riding in on a horse, the candidate drove himself and his family to Red Rocks in a Jeep Wagoneer. With reporters and photographers from around the world gathered in front and television helicopters circling overhead, Gary Hart revealed the worst-kept secret so far of the current campaign. I intend to be a candidate for the presidency of the United States in 1988. And I do so for one single reason, and that is because I love my country.
0: Well, he did not win. We know how that ended.
1: <laughs> we sure do.
0: Uh, Exandra, I had one request of you when we started working on this archive project. I wanted you to find the report, if we had it, of the Concorde landing in Colorado, the supersonic
2: jet. Did you manage to unearth this?
1: I did. You did. It was in 1985 in Colorado Springs.
2: Several hours before the Concorde landed, crowds started to fill the airport terminal and align the fences. Verna Cater and Betty White drove an hour from Canyon City to see the plane that flies twice the speed of sound. Think you ever have a chance to, uh, to fly on it?
5: Can't afford it. Be nice.
6: <laughs> Love it. Wonderful. You bet. When I get rich, I'm going. <laughs>
2: Outside the Colorado Springs terminal, the number of visitors increased as the temperature dropped. A handful of people braved the cold to protest the Concord. Mel Bernstein rode a horse-drawn wagon from his home 15 miles to the east of the airport. On the wagon, Bernstein hand-lettered signs reading, Keep Colorado Beautiful, Go Back to New York Where It's Already Polluted, and We Don't Want Our County Covered With Your Pollution. Huh.
0: Chris, there was a lot of concern, too, about noise pollution and the supersonic boom. Oh, that's fascinating. Thanks for unearthing that. I'm a huge aviation geek, Xandra, so that that meant a lot. I, I wonder if, if the tape actually included any passengers, though.
1: It did. And they, they talked about how fancy the food was on board <laughs> and how great the service was. Well, they
5: ply you with food and drink. Anything. Uh, It's very clean. Um, They treat you with great deference. They're very polite. Just think of everything for your comfort. It's wonderful.
0: Talk about a contrast then and now with air travel. Uh, So the Concord landed in Colorado Springs. Denver, Stapleton at the time, turned it down because of those noise concerns. Uh, Speaking of, uh, the opening of DIA seems like another big milestone not to dominate this with aviation.
1: That's true. And we do have quite a bit of tape from DIA's, you know, tumultuous construction in that era, uh, and then finally up to when it opened in 1995.
6: Denver Mayor Wellington Webb said the smooth opening marks a turning point for the airport after years of criticism and jokes.
2: Finally, we've been able to climb the mountain and open Denver International Airport. And for those that would continue to work against this airport and debate whether it should have been built, it's really nonsensical and silly. Huh.
0: Now, of course, all these years later, DIA undergoing a massive renovation and expansion. But You know, it's funny that this be the tape we listen to, Alexandra, because my first interview for CPR ever was about
1: DIA. Oh, I do know that, because guess what? I, dug, I dug that up, too. Oh, boy. <laughs> and you're, you're introduced, actually, as a guest host okay. at the time. And you were interviewing Ramiro Montalegre, an associate professor at CU Boulder.
0: Oh, yeah. He wrote a kind of famous business paper about what went wrong with DIA's automated baggage system. Kind of cursed. And for a while, only United was using it. In one direction, and they even stopped that. It's nice to have you with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. What's your reaction to United's decision?
4: Oh, I think uh, it have not worked for a long time. so so I, I think that for a while they tried to make it happen, and they were using it only as an outbound. But by now, they really understand that there is nothing that they can benefit from having it. And I'm not surprised that it was caught.
0: But it seems to have taken a long time for that realization to come. Ten years is is a while. Why do you think it took a decade?
4: Well, again, what happened is, uh, and, and this is a very typical problem when you develop information systems, which is you become so committed to a project that you keep trying to make it happen. Well, my voice seemed deeper then somehow.
1: I noticed that too.
0: Isn't it supposed to get deeper as I get older? What happened? Okay. Well, thank you for digging that up.
1: Yeah, of course. So was this around 2005 probably?
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: All right. I just have one last piece of audio from this audio treasure hunt. Okay. And uh, tell me, Ryan, when you joined the show, was the Colorado Matters theme song still this spy thrillery?
0: Yes. Yeah. It almost sounded like a noir film. I thought. I mean, the Pink Panther is walking into the studio with us right now.
1: I know. You know what I was thinking? Maybe this could be my theme song every time I'm on the show from now on.
0: Okay, we just play the (laughs) old CM Noir theme. (laughs) Exandra, thank you so much for that.
1: Yeah, all right. Well, we're actually going to give Ryan some much-needed time off after this year, and uh, I'm going to captain this ship for the rest of the hour. So bye, Ryan. Bye,
0: Exandra McMahon.
1: Coming up, how the state's beer scene has changed in half a century. I'm Xandra McMahon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
2: It's the story that dominated the 2020 news People cycle. That more than 60% of Coloradans back a policy of staying at home to slow the spread of coronavirus. It's not yet reached the number that we need to save lives. And we have
1: hospitals, especially in some of the more remote areas, that are absolutely full State right now. Designated to receive the
4: Pfizer vaccine. I'm Leo Gomez and we got the COVID vaccine here for Fantastic. you.
0: The story of the coronavirus pandemic is still being told. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News.
1: You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Xandra McMahon. You hear the phrase, the Napa Valley of Beer, tossed around a lot about this state. It's a catchy description with more than 400 breweries here. That's why when I started working on this project to mark CPR's 50th, I was like, we have to do a story on beer. And let's be honest, it's not every day you get to tell your boss that you have to hang out at a brewery all afternoon for a story. Host Avery Lill and I took a trip to Falling Rock Tap House in Denver back in February. You know, in the before times. And she spoke with these three
3: beer experts.
6: I am Betsy Lay. I'm the co-founder and owner of Lady Justice Brewing.
3: Jonathan Shikes. I've been a writer, reporter, and editor for the past 25 years or so. And I have a book on the history of Denver beer and brewing that is coming out on March 2nd.
4: I'm Thomas Covan. I'm assistant professor of history at Colorado State University and we're going to open a student exhibition next week on March 6th about the history of beer in Fort Collins and Northern Colorado.
5: Jonathan, when we were deciding where to do this interview, you said that Falling Rock is the king of craft beer in Denver. Is that just because they have so many options?
3: It's a little bit of both. They have been around the longest when it comes to craft beer. They opened with the goal of having no crap on tap which is their their motto (laughs) and they opened in 1997 when there wasn't really a craft beer scene in denver there were a few breweries and maybe one or two bars but Wilding rock opened with 75 different craft beers on tap it was a game changer and thomas and betsy have you guys been here before
6: I have. I had uh, Lady Justice beer on tap here last summer, which was really fun. Even before then, I mean, I did my undergrad at University of Denver, and it was just amazing to have that available.
4: This is a very uh, rich and colorful place with so many bottles. I was struck when I entered the room, that's the first time I come here. I'm relatively new to Colorado, and I was struck by, the, you know, the, the scene. So many beers, so many tap handles. This remind me of these public houses in Europe, you know, the, these pubs. Uh, Very cozy atmosphere. I I love it. There's just
5: bottles and tap handles all over the walls. Okay, well, we can't do an interview about beer without drinking a little beer. So here's what we're going to do. There are three different beers on the table, each one representing a different major movement in Colorado's beer history. And as we move through the decades, we'll switch beers. Okay, so Coors Banquet beer. Cheers. 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 Yeah, this
4: tastes like party beer.
5: Thomas, you're shaking your head.
4: It's not my style of beer. (laughs) No, it's too light, too mainstream, too old. Too
5: old. Okay, well, we're starting this retrospective in 1970. That's the year that CPR first went on the air, and all year we're celebrating the station's 50th birthday by diving into Colorado's history. We picked Coors Banquet to get us started, um, why do you think this beer represents that decade and all the history leading up to
4: it? I just have one image. For me, it's 1968, when you had students at Colorado State University, where it was not legal to drink beer, not even 3.2, and they wanted to break the law. So in 1968, October 18, they bring packs of course and drunk beers on, you know on campus and broke the law that led to the end of Prohibition 1969, so they used Coors to break the law that led to Craft Brewery, which is paradoxical for me.
6: My mom used to drive when she was in college. She went to the University of Missouri for her undergrad and they used to drive to Colorado to pick up Coors because at that time it was the best beer, like that is what people wanted and then they would bootleg it over the Kansas and Missouri state lines.
3: Coors is, uh, was founded in 1873, and they uh, have been the, probably the beer of choice for most people living in Colorado and growing up here. When I was growing up, one of the rites of passage when you turned 18, for me since I was uh, old enough to, to drink 3.2 beer back in the 80s, was to go on a tour of, of the Coors plant and to try the free beers at the end. So I think it's been a rite of passage for, for generations of, of kids.
5: And what about it? I mean, so, Thomas, you're shaking your head because it's a light beer. But at the time, is that what people were craving? Yeah.
6: I mean, Might have been all people knew, honestly. I mean, this is, this is just before craft beer cracks onto the scene again. So people are drinking. My understanding is uh, post-Prohibition loggers that came back after Prohibition ended, which was primarily... The style. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I don't know if people knew that they had other options to drink, or if there commercially were other options.
4: There were very few breweries after Prohibition, and you know the number of beers available was not like today, right? And mentioning beers, they wanted something light, something mainstream, and you know, of course, banquet is very iconic of that time period.
5: And are there other names that we think of now that they were competing with then?
3: Well, in the in the 1970s, Anheuser-Busch was was big. There were still a few of the old brands like Schlitz and Meisterbrau, but a lot of these famous old beer brands were buying each other up, and the number of breweries declined all the way down to about 80 uh, in the late 70s, so that's all that was left after all the in consolidation. the entire country. Yep.
5: Wow. So, things were kind of dead in the beer scene at that time, essentially, is what you're saying. And in North Colorado, Prohibition had just ended in the 1970s. Thomas, explain why no one was drinking in Fort Collins region until then.
4: Well, Fort Collins and Northern Colorado, like Greeley, and uh, even Boulder. You know, Prohibition in Boulder ended in the late 60s as well. It was a very different scene. You know, people were more conservative. You know, there were small towns, uh, agricultural college in Fort Collins. And they, they had an issue with, with beer and alcohol. And prohibition started in 1896 in Fort Collins, right? So Fort Collins was almost dry for 73 years. So that they, they changed in the 60s because of, you know, new students, new population in Fort Collins. But, the, you know, it was not yet the craft beer scene that started in more in the 1980s. So all they had to do and drink in the 1970s were like 3.2 or mainstream beers like Coors Banquet and, and so on. So yes, Fort Collins in Northern Colorado was very different like 50 years ago. You see a dramatic change in 20, 30 years.
5: Now Betsy, in the 1970s, what do you know about the presence of female brewers at this time? Were there any?
6: In the 1970s, I think you're starting to see a rise in home brewing, and that really takes off in the 80s. So I think you're seeing what is actually a a return to original brewing. When talk about going back even 10,000 years ago, all the way up until the Industrial Revolution, women were the primary brewers in society. And so what I think is really interesting is home brewing sort of brings back maybe what's sort of this ancestral thing inside of women to create. So I think I think you're seeing women brewing on a homebrew level for sure. As far as I know, women aren't involved in founding and the business side of brewery besides Carol Strout. There are a couple of others maybe in Oregon, maybe in Utah, but we don't, we don't see a rise in women in the professional brewing side until, until we get a little bit later. But there are some wonderful
5: pioneers who started that for us really in the early and mid 80s. I love that you bring us even back 10,000 years ago because there's even an Egyptian goddess of beer. Ninkasi. Uh-huh. <laughs> Home brewing was federally legalized in 1978 This is also when Charlie Papazian started to get a reputation in Boulder for being the beer guy. He'd been homebrewing for a while already under the radar. What does he mean to the beer scene?
3: He means everything to the beer scene. Uh, He started the American Homebrewers Association. He started what is today the Brewers Association, which is the trade group for for all craft breweries. He wrote the book on on homebrewing, and he fostered the kind of spirit community spirit that craft brewing has had for for decades.
5: What is that spirit? Can you describe it?
3: To me that spirit is one of a lot of different people trying to get along and help each other out to bring everyone together over the camaraderie that comes with drinking a beer and working together even if you have different companies.
6: And I think that happens a lot. You see that in the industry today professionally. But I think that you can point to Charlie and sort of the early American Homebrewers Association and Brewers Association, just the way they, just their personalities and wanting to sort of foster this community idea. I think you see that has seeped into the professional craft beer life Mm -hmm. in Colorado today.
4: Yeah, I mean, whenever you try to organize an event with Charlie, the room is packed. We organized an event last year. It's going to come back to Fort Collins, and I know the room will be packed. Everybody's coming with a book, his book, to be signed, because he's the father of homebrewing. He was doing classes of homebrewing when it was still illegal in the 70s, (laughs) doing the beer and steer in Boulder, having people coming to Boulder to homebrew. I think he inspired generations, I guess, plural, of of people to brew and to homebrew. And those people created the craft breweries in the 1980s. Like 95% of the craft breweries in Fort Collins were created by homebrewers. So you have a clear connection between Charlie home brewing and, and the craft revolution.
5: Let's move us forward a decade. Are there any craft breweries opening up in the 1980s?
3: Yeah, the 1980s saw the very first few cluster of breweries to open, in at least in Colorado. The first one had been Boulder Beer in 1979, but in 1988, Wincoop Brewing here in Denver opened up, and Carver Brewing in Durango, and three breweries in Fort Collins opened that year. Odell was the, uh, I think the first Cooper Smiths and Old Colorado Brewery. Those those all opened in the eighties.
5: And at this point, does it feel like the Colorado beer scene is on the brink of a major shift?
4: Yes, yes, they were. I mean, as you said, Jonathan, in nineteen eighty nine, three new breweries that changes the scene in Fort Collins. You have Craft, you have new kind of beers, you have Ninety Shillings. In nineteen ninety one, you have New Belgium. But but that changes everything because you can not only drink Coors and Banquet, but you can try something different. And those people wear hamburgers that's the beginning of the, of the change in Fort Collins and, and in Colorado. So this seems
5: like a good time to transition from our Coors Banquet to our next beer, New Belgium's La Poli.
4: Do you want my Coors?
5: No. <laughs> mmm, that is a very different beer than the Coors Banquet, wow. I remember the first time I had this beer.
6: It was at the brewery. Uh, I got to try one right off the line, I think even pre-bottled. And it was, I was just like, what is this? Because it was the first sort of sour ale that I'd ever heard of. I didn't even know that was a thing yet. Yeah, this, is, this sort of, to me, sets, a, sets the standard for sours, at least on the Colorado scene.
4: For me, La Folie is the symbol of, of New Belgium, the connection with, with Belgium. Uh, La Folie was made by Peter Buchart. You know, was Belgian came to the U.S. and there is this sour type, which is which was new. It's a very specific type of Belgian beer, like Lambic and Goose, Very different from what people had in in Colorado. That's the thing about New Belgium: this connection between local small town Fort Collins and Europe and international connection. That that's very specific.
5: But yeah, love this thing that you said about like remembering the first time that you had it, and that beer kind of holds memories. Mm-hmm.
6: I remember the very first craft beer I ever had was at a house party at DU, and somebody handed me what I think was a Breckenridge Honey Ale, this is probably at 2002, and I remember tasting it and not liking it, because all I had known before was Budweiser, and I was like, what is this, this is just so gross, and then I had a fat tire, and I was like, okay, I understand this now, and that was, that was the beginning of it for me.
5: Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the history of beer. Now we're in the 90s and this is really when the craft beer scene exploded all across Colorado, right?
3: Yeah, it absolutely did. Breweries started to be uh, were founded everywhere all in, through the mountain towns in Denver, Fort Collins, down to Durango, Colorado Springs. It was It was definitely the heyday of the early part of, of craft brewing.
5: And what makes a craft beer a craft beer? Like is it the styles they're experimenting with or the fact that it's a small
3: operation? The, the main thing that makes a craft beer a craft beer is, is that it's made by a small company. There are a lot of arguments over what makes a craft beer. Coors would tell you that their small batch beers are made in a craft style. The majority of the independent breweries that are out there, and there are going on 8,000 of them in the country now, would disagree and say that it's a, being a small company, having a, all your hands on, and doing something that is very local and a very part of your community that makes something a craft beer.
5: And wasn't there a thought back in the day that the American brewing industry would eventually be monopolized by a few companies like Coors? That didn't happen, did it?
3: No. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, not not yet. And in, in my book, I, I when I, I work up through the through the seventies to when Boulder Beer opened in nineteen seventy nine, as the forty third, it had the forty third brewing license after Prohibition. And from then on, the the number of of breweries, which was down around 80 or 88, just began to skyrocket to to where we are today.
5: I think it's so interesting that you said not yet. Is that still Mm -hmm. a concern? (laughs) If you're a craft brewery
6: and you are successful enough to get to a size where people start to notice you on a national scale, or if you are encroaching on the market of a big brewery you might find yourself in a little bit of trouble in terms of having to really decide if, if being sold is something that you're open to. And I think a lot of mid- to large-sized craft breweries are, are starting to have to make decisions they maybe never thought they would have to make, even 10 years ago. For me, I see a lot of brewers really struggle with what size is the right size and what kind of distribution is the right distribution and how to, how to handle those things. And so we're seeing really successful really well-loved breweries getting bought up by these larger corporations and it's heartbreaking on one hand and then on the other hand it's like okay well they have a decision to make they have employees to look out for in their own bank accounts because a lot of them have putting themselves into debt to do this and so I think there's some stuff yet to be seen
5: so you could essentially succeed your way out of the craft brewing scene you might yeah So let's move on to the beer of today. Our last beer is the Comrade Superpower. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
4: Cheers. Hoppy.
5: Mmm. That's a lot lighter than the La Folie, but not like the Coors Banquet. (laughs) Nothing is lighter
4: than the Coors Banquet. What about Coors Coors Light? (laughs) Yeah, Coors Light, that's what I was gonna say too.
5: What about this one signifies the contemporary brewing scene in Colorado?
3: to me comrade is one of the breweries that really turned the corner for for craft breweries they took the some of the older traditions from the 90s and the early 2000s and and the really hoppy beers and they took more modern hops very contemporary american style of hops and just blew them out and and made this this beer in particular is one of the best IPAs that's made in Colorado it is both To me, I always call it balanced and unbalanced because it is unbelievably hoppy, but it, it really it's just a delight to drink. It's, it's my jam.
5: And there is so much competition on the craft scene now. How do brewers set themselves apart? In many ways, through
6: style, winning a medal at something like Great American Beer Fest can put you on the map for a long time. Some people do it with gimmicks, some people do it with uh, trends, whether they're <laughs> good or not I think people do whatever they can to bring in a market.
4: That's something very powerful in Fort Collins you can either choose your style like Belgian or German beer like Zwei or Prost breweries or you can also be very much involved in the communities right the sustainability the weather reuse and doing things for your community is very important for the small breweries and, and that's that's their market we were talking about what's the future of craft and one discussion is, you know, to stay local and to work on your community networks. And that's, I think that's so far the recipe for success in Fort Collins, to work on your community festivals, your community, you know, volunteering and, and weather reuse, which is very important in Fort Collins or Colorado, which is you know, climate change and water reuse. That's something that microbreweries have been working on for the last 10 years.
5: And Thomas, you started getting into this a little bit, but I understand that environmental concerns also play a big role in today's brewing culture. How else are breweries thinking about this?
4: And just when you think about how much water you need to make beer, right? Uh, that's a lot. So they have to breweries have to think about water use, especially in a state where you know water use is, is an issue, and you know global warming and the future next years. The price of cereals, the, the price for water use is something that they have to to be thinking about.
6: Yeah, there are concerns um, every few years about hop supplies and and growing patterns and if there's going to be enough hops to go around and if there are enough companies able enough farms able to sustain what's needed and so you'll find year to year different styles uh, different varieties of hops will jump up and down in price just based off of the availability and so there are some years where a year or two previous these hops were really, really popular and everybody wanted them. And then all of a sudden, you really can't get them for a while. And so it it can change how a brewer uh, shapes a recipe or deals with consistency of the product, too.
5: And Betsy, I think that Lady Justice Brewing is an interesting example of the way that breweries look very different now than they did 50 years ago. Lady Justice is entirely run by women, and brewing beer was not the primary reason you and your partners opened it, right?
6: Yeah, no, not at all. Beer was was the answer to a problem that we were seeing. So we all worked in nonprofit. We were AmeriCorps Vistas together, raising money for a really cool organization during the recession. And so there was no grant money. And so we would, with the very little money that we had left in our pockets, we would go to Vine Street and get a beer and just complain about how hard our job was. And so one of us at some point i think it was jen she was just like look at all the people in this room everybody's willing to spend their money on this beer like how great would it be if some of that money could come back and go to the nonprofit we were working for and so we needed to solve a fundraising problem and, and the answer to that was beer just because we drank it a lot <laughs> <You know? laughs> so even in a recession people are still drinking beer so it is yeah maybe even more beer i don't
5: <laughs> well thank you all so much for chatting with me for a history of beer <laughs> And the history of Colorado kind of threw that lens. Absolutely. Thanks for
4: having us. Thank
1: you. Avery Lill speaking with Betsy Lay of Lady Justice Brewing, Jonathan Shikes, author of the book Denver Beer, and former CSU history professor Thomas Covant, who's now at the University of Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. CPR turned 50 this year, and to celebrate, we've taken stock of our state then and now. How has Colorado changed over the decades? Well, there's certainly been a lot of change on the music scene. We asked G. Brown to walk us through the last half-century of music here. He's the director of the Colorado Music Experience, he helped found the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, and he covered music for the Denver Post for 26 years. Brown spoke with Avery Lill in March. It's June
5: 1971, CPR is still less than a year old, and prog rock band Jethro Tull is in town playing Red Rocks. More than a thousand people without tickets show up to listen to the concert from the parking lot, but things escalated?
7: A riot ensued. They had oversold the show. Promoter Barry Fay said that he should have booked two shows, only did one, and that was really the problem. It wasn't... uh, a full-fledged riot. These were just a couple of hundred kids who uh, decided to cause a little trouble and, and try to get into the venue. But based on some other previous experiences at concerts, the police decided to draw a hard line. They responded with tear gas. The kids responded by throwing rocks, and it just escalated. Helicopters, all the action was on the outside of the theater, but the tear gas wafted inside the amphitheater. To the crowd that had no idea what was going on, a gentleman named Livingston Taylor was the opening act, James's younger brother, and he started crying on stage. You know what's what's happening? It's music is supposed to be peaceful. I always gave big credit to Ian Anderson, the leader of Jethro Tull. He continued to play through the tear gas, stalking the stage like a madman. In the
4: shuffling man-
7: Dead. Oh, feels the scraping, on his brow oh, and, the
2: train watch top. Oh,
7: no, it and had he not done that I think this would have gone down as a historic event in terms of the carnage that would have ensued but he kept everyone's attention on the stage and things eventually passed. The fallout was that shows were banned at Red Rocks for nearly five years. Only soft rock acts such as John Denver were allowed. And after a point, promoter Barry Fay sued the city to be able to bring rock acts back into the venue. And that's when things really kicked off for Red Rocks as we know it today.
5: In the meantime, big things are happening in the Boulder area, like in Netherland. That's where in 1972, an old barn was converted into a music studio called Caribou Ranch.
7: Caribou was the headquarters for the Colorado scene. James William Garcia, he'd established himself as the producer of the band Chicago's first five albums. He bought a former dude ranch outside of Netherland, Colorado, and turned it into the first destination studio, if you will. A resort for recording acts up to that point bands pretty much punched a clock in los angeles or new york studios what gercio came up with was the idea that musicians could sequester in the mountains and have everything taken care of opulent lodging and meals recreation and also use his state-of-the-art recording facility and this was at a time the 70s the music biz was flush with cash and excesses and Everyone from Elton John to Billy Joel to the Beach Boys to Rod Stewart recorded a caribou. Quite a list.
5: Another thing we should mention about the 70s, this is when concert promoting started to become big business. Denver stopped being a so-called flyover city for musicians. And that all started with a man you actually already mentioned, Barry Fay.
7: Again, the 70s saw the nascent stages of the modern concert industry. Concert promotion back then was run like a cartel if you will. Each promoter had his territory. Someone once said it was just like the mob, only without the violence. And I always wonder why that qualifier was put on it. (laughs) It was just like the mob, period. And the man who ran Denver was Barry Fay. Not considered a nice man by many folks, but what he accomplished was undeniable. Colorado was, as you say, the flyover for acts heading from the Midwest to the West Coast and vice versa. Back in the day, bands largely toured on the East Coast uh, almost exclusively because they could drive and play gigs every night. For Denver, it was an extra day to drive in or fly in and then another day to get out before you could get to the next stop 600 miles either direction. Faye put Colorado on the touring map. He made it a must-play market for every act.
5: Okay, moving forward. Now we're in the 80s. Does the momentum continue in the state's music scene?
7: The cultural landscape in the 80s was ruled by MTV, so that impacted Colorado when scads of the glitzy new wave bands and glam metal bands came to town. Uh, When they arrived for the first time, they usually played the Rainbow Music Hall, which was a 1,300-seat venue that was a destination for a slew of iconic acts. U2, The Police, Talking Heads, on and on. Those acts would then play Red Rocks in the ensuing years. On the other side of the state, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival had become an annual phenomenon. But for some reason, Colorado artists themselves mostly fell short of national exposure. The talent scouts from major record labels didn't sniff around the state during the 80s. Uh, That streak ended when the Subdudes signed a deal in 1988 with Atlantic Records. That was a big deal there was even a ceremony at the governor's mansion and big head todd and the monsters the samples bands followed at almost the same time
5: now big head todd and the monsters like you mentioned they're one of the breakaway acts in the end of the 80s in the 90s they did sign with a major label but they kept doing stuff their way right
7: they got their start on their own big records they released their music through that imprint and toured like crazy, and built up the word of mouth, and had their own following, and so by the time they signed a major label deal in the early 90s, they already had their system in place. They owned their touring band. They didn't have to take a huge advance from the record label that they'd have to pay back. It was really a a brilliant model in retrospect, and those guys deserve a lot of credit for figuring out how to navigate that scene. I
2: was walking by the blue, blue, I was thinking about you oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. By the
5: Of the 90s. I don't think of Colorado or Denver as being one of the grunge hotspots. What kind of other bands did well here in the 90s?
7: I think a lot of it was a reaction to the 80s, the flashy excesses of that scene, and it was embodied by jam bands, the groups that focused on creating unique concert performances for every show. You had groups like Leftover Salmon and String Cheese Incident and Yonder Mountain String Band.
3: I ramble
2: around on the outskirts of town.
5: Visions from the past fill my mind. I remember the day that you went away. Each and every tear that I cried. Autumn chill cuts the air, leaves go through the sky.
7: I fear spirit everywhere. I can hear you sigh. Rest this way. So, a lot of people ended up attending PICS up in the mountains outside of Netherlands. Uh, Getting together, playing banjos, mandolins, and uh, working on an improvisational ferment that has created the jam band scene that we know today. Colorado has to be considered the headquarters of that particular scene. The Fox Theater in Boulder opened its doors and welcomed that subculture of neo-hippies, if you will, lots of other giants who reshaped the music world. You had national acts like Blues Traveler and Dave Matthews Band who found their audiences in Colorado. Blues Traveler, uh, coming out of New York, came to Colorado and found the jam band culture thriving here. Dave Matthews Band, first time they left Virginia, it was to come and play the Fox Theater in Boulder. And we know what happened there. became one of the biggest acts of the 90s. Uh, So always have been able to provide an audience for uh, adventurous musicians.
5: And you know, G, while we've been talking, I can't help but wonder, where are all the women? I know the music industry was notoriously a boys' club around this time, but were any women breaking out of the woodwork in Colorado?
7: Sure. Uh, uh, It is problematic. I um, deal with that all the time. Uh, It was inequitable back in the day, but Uh, There were women who represented someone like Diane Reeves, the Grammy-winning jazz singer, uh, considered the contemporary equivalent of an Ella Fitzgerald. always lived in park hill and has kept her career intact basing out of here but that's under the radar of most popular music uh, aficionados just little things like that that's always been the interesting thing about uh, colorado music it hasn't had the uh, big impact of scenes out of new york los angeles nashville detroit whatever But lots of interesting little stories that put together make for a pretty compelling little uh, legacy.
5: So we're getting closer to present day and how the music scene looks now. During the aughts, the whole record industry is in turmoil with things like Napster and the internet taking away sales and changing the way music is made and shared. But a local group breaks out during this tumultuous time.
7: You're talking about the fray and they did have an astounding trajectory. Uh, They went from playing gigs to friends and family to commanding international attention. They signed a major label deal, and the song Over My Head broke them. It was certified double platinum, sawing more than two million digital downloads. debut album went on to sell more than two million copies. They were a double Grammy nominee. Uh, they turned out to be one of the most successful and visible acts that Colorado's ever produced. But it was in a climate, like you described, record labels and mainstream radio were no longer the holders of a monopoly on musical taste making. All the new technology had provided different tools. Performers could grow their profiles, if you will, and fund their music using social media. They didn't have to get radio airplay or being mentioned in newspapers or magazines. So many other acts had their moment in the aughts from 303, a couple of clowns out of Boulder that had uh, what would be considered kind of novelty hits. The Flowbots, their song Handlebars was a huge smash. And those guys have... uh, been very inspirational in, in terms of their social consciousness.
5: I can make you want to buy a product. Movers, <laughs> shakers, and producers. Me and my friends understand the future. I see the strings that control the system. I can do anything with no resistance because I can lead a nation with a microphone. With a microphone. With a microphone. And I can split the atom of a
1: molecule.
7: Devotchka. I'm not supposed to play favorites, but they're one of my favorites, uh, led by Nick Urata, just an amazing blend of musical genres that uh, just doesn't sound like anything else. Uh, one Republic, based out of Colorado Springs, which is where their leader, Ryan Tedder, grew up, and he tried to bring as much of the industry to Colorado as he could when he was at the top of the charts.
5: You know, CPR's music service, Indie1023, has this mission of amplifying local, independent musicians. I wonder if Colorado still feels like a place where experimentation is encouraged and local bands have a chance at getting into those once-independent venues like Ogden or Bluebird.
7: Yeah, it's political, it's financial, it's a lot of things. If talent was the only barometer, the charts would look a lot different, I've always said. That's not just now, it's forever. Um, here in current day and in, throughout the 2010s, I really think it's about weed, isn't it? <laughs> if you're a young musician looking to, for a place to headquarter, legal weed and a thriving live scene would seem to be the most attractive option. Uh, one look at the concert listings reflects how vibrant the Colorado scene currently is.
5: Gee, thanks so much for joining me.
7: Thank you, Avery. It's always a pleasure to be on Colorado Matters.
1: Brown, founder of the Colorado Music Experience and the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. That's the show today, folks. Thanks for joining us and thanks to the Colorado Matters team.
2: Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis.
0: Michelle Fulcher. Matt hers Michael Hughes.
2: Carla Jimenez.
0: Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo
1: Shalsina. With Ryan Warner and Avery Lowe, I'm Alexandra McMahon. Happy New Year. This is CPR News.